Section fifteen of the most extraordinary trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Section fifteen. The defence. Seventh day continued. I have now pointed out such discrepancies in the evidence given by Mills before the coroner and before you as will, I think, make it clear to you that you cannot rely upon her testimony since she first gave her evidence she has had the means of knowing what is the case on the part of the crown i do not mean to say she has been tutored by the crown i believe that my learned friend would not have called her if he thought she had but she has had the opportunity of discovering by interviews with several different people that the case for the prosecution is that palmer having first prepared the body of cook for deadly poison by the poison of antimony afterwards dispatched him with the deadly poison of strychnine their case is that there was an administration of something which had the effect of producing retching nausea and irritation of the stomach those symptoms are therefore attributed to the persevering intention of the prisoner to reduce cook to such a state of weakness that when once ingestion of the poison occurred he was sure to be carried off in her evidence before the coroner she was asked whether she had tasted the broth she said she had and she thought it very good she did not then say anything about the ill effects the broth had produced but she has since learnt that it is part of the case of those out of whose hands the crown has taken the prosecution and that it is the theory of dr taylor but all this retching and vomiting was the result of a constant dosing with antimonial poison she has probably been frequently asked whether she was not sick after drinking the broth perhaps she may have been sick on some sunday or other and she has persuaded herself for i do not wish to impute perjury to her that she was made sick by the two tablespoonfuls of broth which she drank it is not to the last degree incredible that a shrewd intelligent man like palmer should have exposed himself to such a chance of detection as sending broth which he had poisoned from his house to stand by the kitchen fire of the talbot arms when sure as fate the cook would taste it did you ever know a cook who would not taste broth sent by another person and said to be particularly good it is not in the nature of things a cook is a taster she tastes everything and palmer must have known that as sure as ever he sent into the kitchen broth containing antimony the cook would take it and be ill her statement is not credible and cannot be relied on then she said in her evidence before the coroner that on saturday cook had coffee and vomited directly he swallowed it and that up to the time she gave him the coffee she had not seen palmer she was not then aware that the theory of the gradual preparation of the body by antimony was to fit into the theory of death from strychnine but by the time she came here she had become acquainted with that part of the case my learned friend stated that palmer ordered him to drink coffee on saturday morning it was brought in by the chambermaid elizabeth mills and given to the prisoner who had an opportunity of tampering with it before giving it to cook there is all the difference between this statement of my learned friend and that first made by mills before the coroner but the young woman did not go quite so far as that 
she went however to this extent palmer came over at eight o'clock and ordered a cup of coffee for cook i gave it to him i believe palmer was in the bedroom at the time i did not see him drink it i observed afterwards that the coffee had been vomited her statement was not so strong as that of my learned friend but a great deal stronger than the one she made before the coroner the two statements are essentially different and the difference between them consists in this the one supports the theory suggested by the prosecution the other is totally inconsistent with it can you rely on a woman who makes such alterations in her testimony that is not all the case suggested for the crown now is that cook expressed reluctance to take the pills ordered for him and that his reluctance was overruled by palmer mills's first statement was that cook said the pills made him ill here she said that the pills which palmer gave him made him ill before the coroner too she did not say that palmer was in the bedroom between nine and ten on monday night as she has stated here she makes him more about the bedside of the man she gives him a greater opportunity of administering pills and medicine she shows an animus the result according to the most charitable construction that can be put upon it of a persuasion that palmer must be guilty but still an animus which shows that she is not to be relied on how easily may persons in her condition make mistakes without intending to deceive it is the just punishment of all falsehood that when a lie has once been told it cannot be retracted without humiliation and when once this young woman had been induced to vary her statement in a material particular she had not the moral courage to set herself right but the particulars i have mentioned are nothing to those to which i will now call your attention i impeach her testimony on the ground that she here gesticulated and gave her evidence in such a manner that if it had been natural and she had adopted it at the inquest it must have attracted the attention of dr taylor the remarkable contortions into which she put her hands her mouth and her neck would if they had been observed at the inquest have been reduced to verbal expression and recorded in the depositions i am told by dr nunnally dr robinson and other gentlemen that the symptoms she described are inconsistent with any known disease there was an extraordinary grouping of symptoms some of them quite consistent with tetanus produced by strychnine administered under peculiar circumstances others quite inconsistent with it now in the last week of february a frightful case of strychnine occurred in leeds a person having the means of access to the bedside of a patient was supposed to have administered small doses day by day and after keeping her for some time in a state of irritation to have at last killed her the person who attended the patient spoke of her symptoms for about a week before her death and said she had twitchings in the legs that she was alarmed at being touched in the intervals between the spasms i will now call your attention to the evidence of mills she states quote, cook said i can't lie down i shall be suffocated if i lie down i'll fetch mr palmer the last words he said very loud i did not observe his legs but there was a sort of jumping or jerking about his head and neck and the body sometimes he would throw back his head upon the pillow and then raise it up again 
he had much difficulty in breathing the balls of his eyes projected very much he screamed again three or four times while i was in the room he was moving and knocking about all the time he asked me to rub his hands i did rub them and he thanked me i noticed him twitch i gave him toast and water his body was still jerking and thumping when i put the spoon in his mouth he snapped at it and got it fast between his teeth and seemed to bite at it very hard in snapping at the spoon he threw forward his head and neck he swallowed the toast and water and with it the pills palmer then handed him a draught in a wine glass cook drank this he snapped at the glass as he had done at the spoon he seemed as though he could not exactly control himself End quote. the expressions she used particularly the word twitching are remarkable it may well be that when this case became public she may have had her attention called to it and then had questions put to her with regard to the symptoms of cook which induced her to alter the evidence she had before given i cannot otherwise account for the remarkable variance in her evidence from the time she left the talbot arms till she came here she seems to have been a person of remarkable importance she went to dolly's where stevens visited her five or six times what for stevens was unquestionably and within proper limits he is not to be blamed for it indignant at the circumstances of cook's death he is not in the same condition of life as mills why did he call on her why did he converse with her in a private room he came she said to inquire after her health and see how she liked london mr gardner also saw her in the street but he only asked her how she was and talked of other things i do not say that these gentlemen went to her with the deliberate intention of inducing her to say what was false but they did go with the deliberate intention of stimulating her memory upon points as to which they thought it required stimulating mr hatton the police officer of rugeley also saw her a few times they could have gone to her for no purpose but that of taking her evidence i may mention a circumstance which shows how differently minor matters may be stated by witnesses who do not wish to assert what is false when palmer went into the bedroom after being called up he remarked i do not think i ever dressed so quickly in my life and it is suggested that he never went to bed but waited up for the commencement of the paroxysm mills answered the question i put to her upon that point pretty fairly she said he came in his dressing-gown and i do not recollect that there was anything like a day-shirt about his neck on the other hand lavinia barnes who gave her evidence in a most respectable manner said that he was quite dressed that he wore his usual dress people get talking about what they have witnessed the real image of what occurred becomes confused or altogether obliterated from their minds and they at last unconsciously tell a story which is very different from the truth mills was examined three times before the coroner and if that officer acted improperly on those occasions it was quite competent for the crown to bring him here and give him an opportunity of vindicating himself but he ought not to be blamed upon the evidence of a witness like her in the course of her examination however there came out a fact which is worthy of remark is there not something extraordinary in the periodicity of the attacks she described in their recurrence on three nights nearly at the same hour there are numerous cases in the books in which attacks of this kind occurred at the same distance of time after the patient has gone to bed 
without going into unnecessary details i will now state what i intend to prove upon this part of the case i shall call a great number of most respectable medical practitioners and surgeons in general practice with a large experience in great cities who will support the theory that these fits of cook were probably not tetanus at all but violent convulsions the result of a weak habit of body increased by a careless mode of life by at least a sufficient amount of disease to render violent mineral poisons in their opinion desirable and by habits which led to a chronic ulceration of the tonsils and difficulty in swallowing they will prove that men with constitutions weakened by indulgence have often under the influence of strong mental excitement and violent emotion of any kind been suddenly thrown into such a state of convulsion that symptoms have been exhibited in the voluntary muscles of violent disease and that persons suffering from those symptoms have constantly died asphyxiated or of exhaustion leaving no trace whatever as to the cause of death in addition i will call several gentlemen who will speak to experiments they have made upon animals who will be ready to show you those experiments in any yard belonging to this building if my lords should think fit they will tell you on the authority of orfila that no degree of putrescence will decompose strychnine and that if it is in the body they will be sure to find it even now lord campbell said that the court could not see the experiments made but witnesses might be called to prove them mr sergeant shee i have now done with that branch of the case and will proceed to the last matter to which i propose to direct your attention i propose to discuss whether the circumstantial evidence is inexplicable on the supposition of the prisoner's innocence and if i show you that in all its broad and salient features it is not so i am sure that you will be only too happy to acquit him recollecting that you represent the country which is uninformed upon the case which has no opportunity of hearing the witnesses on either side lord campbell in the language of the law which country you are mr sergeant shee which country you are you are responsible not to render this kingdom liable to the charge of having in a paroxysm of prejudice propagated by a professional man with no knowledge of his own upon the matter condemned an innocent person in discussing the circumstantial evidence i will avoid no point that seems at all difficult but not to waste time i will not after the intimation which i have received from the bench trouble you with such matters as the pushing against dr devonshire during the post-mortem examination or the cutting of a slit in the cover of the jar which might be done accidentally with any of the sharp instruments which were being used or the putting it at the further end of the room lord campbell what was said referred only to the pushing mr sergeant shee i take leave to suggest that in an examination in the town of rugeley where palmer was perfectly well known the fact of there having been a little apparent shoving which may for the moment have disturbed the operator is not to be allowed to have weight against the prisoner especially as mr devonshire said nothing was lost the matter was one in which all present took considerable interest and a little leaning over might easily have produced the effect which was spoken to then as to the removal of the jar it was not taken out of the room 
it could not have been taken away without its removal being observed and it would have been to the last degree foolish for any guilty person to attempt to remove it that a man who knew himself to be innocent should be very unwilling that the jar should be removed out of the hands of persons upon whom he could rely for honest dealing is very probable palmer knew that there were some persons who did not want to pay him thirteen thousand pounds and who had for a long time been doing all they could to undermine his character and to put to him most wicked conduct with regard to the death of a relation suspicions in which none of his relatives had joined it is clear from his observation quote, well doctor they won't hang us yet end quote, that he knew that it was intended to ground a suspicion or a complaint upon the post-mortem examination and it was exceedingly natural that he should like to have the jar kept in safe custody even in the crowded room all his conduct is consistent with this explanation to dr harland with whom he does not appear to have been particularly intimate he says quote, i am very glad you are come because there is no knowing who might have done it End quote. that is the conduct of a respectable man who knew that his conduct would bear investigation if it were properly conducted i dare say there are in rugeley many excellent and very serious people to whom the prisoner's habits of life his running about to races and so on would not much recommend him and who he had reason to know entertained prejudices against him as to his objection to the jar being taken to mr frere's there had i believe been some slight difference arising out of thirlby's palmer's assistant having come to him from mr frere i do not do mr frere the injustice to think that this slight dispute would have led him to put anything into the jar but it may account for palmer's caution let us now come to the more prominent features of palmer's conduct upon which in accordance with instructions my learned friend principally relied i will first call your attention to the evidence of myatt the postboy at the talbot arms mr stevens had come down from london and had acted towards palmer in such a way as would have induced some men to kick him assuming palmer to be innocent stevens's conduct was most provoking he dissembled with palmer cross-questioned him pretended to take his advice scolded him in a harsh tone of voice almost insulted him threatened a post-mortem examination and acted throughout under the impression that some one had been guilty of foul play towards cook which ought to be brought to light and punished stevens had been there during the whole of the post-mortem examination a gloomy miserable day it must have been poring over the remains of that poor dead man the jar was ready and the fly was at the door to take himself and boycott to stafford in order that this jar might be sent to london out of palmer's ken and notice so that if there was anybody base enough to do it either in support of a theory or to maintain a reputation god forbid that i should suggest that to the prejudice of dr taylor i do not mean to do so but if there was anybody capable of acting so great a wickedness it might be done and it was but a reasonable concern that palmer should be anxious that it should stop at dr harland's he did not like its going with stevens to london 
Stevens had been particularly troublesome. He had been vexatious and annoying to the last degree. The fly was ready when Palmer met Myatt, the postboy, and learned that he was going to drive Mr. Stevens to Stafford. According to Myatt's evidence, Palmer then asked him if he would upset them. That word was first used in this court to designate the jars, but as there was at that time but one jar, it must have been intended to apply to Mr. Stevens and his companion. Palmer's conduct to Stevens had been most exemplary, and he must have been irritated to the last degree to find that he was suspected of stealing a paltry betting-book, which was of no use to any one, and of having played foully and falsely with the life of his friend, the deceased. That he was much annoyed was proved by his observation to Dr. Harland in the morning. Quote, there has been a queer old fellow down here making inquiries who seems to suspect that everything is wrong he thinks i have stolen a betting-book which every one who knows anything knows can be of no use to any one now that poor cook is dead this shows that palmer's mind was impressed with the sense that stevens had ill-treated him he no doubt said to himself he stevens has encouraged and brought back suspicions which have well-nigh destroyed me already and which if he proceeds in this course of bringing another charge against me will probably render it impossible to get the sum which would be sufficient to release me from my embarrassments in this state of mind palmer met the postboy who was ready to drive mr stevens to stafford what occurred then was thus described by myatt Quote, he said he supposed I was going to take the jars. What did you say then, or what did he say? I said I believed I was. After you said you believed you were, what did he say? He says, do you think you could upset them? What answer did you make? I told him no. Did he say anything more? He said, if I could, there was a ten-pound note for me. What did you say to that? I told him I should not. Did he say any more to you? I told him that I must go, for the horse was in the fly waiting for me to start. End quote. In cross-examination he was asked, quote, Were not these the words Palmer used? I should not mind giving ten pounds to break Mr. Stevens's neck. I do not recollect him saying to break his neck. Were they not words to that effect? I should not mind giving him ten pounds to break his neck. I do not recollect that. Then, ten pounds to upset him. Yes. Those were the words, were they? Them were the words, to the best of my recollection. Did he appear to have been drinking at the time? I cannot say. When he said to upset him, did he use any epithet? Did he describe him in any way, such as upset the fellow? He did not describe him in any way. Did he say anything about him at the time? He did say something about it. It was a humbugging concern, or something to that effect. That he was a humbugging concern, was that it? No. That it was a humbugging concern, or something to that effect? Yes. End quote. I submit to you that, after this evidence, you can only regard this expression about upsetting them, in its milder and more innocent sense, as a strong expression used by a man vexed and irritated by the suspicious and inquisitive manner which Stevens had from the first exhibited, 
that this is the correct view of the matter is confirmed by the fact that at the time of the inquest nothing was known of this and myatt was not called myatt was engaged at the talbot arms and must frequently have conversed about the death of cook and the post-mortem examination with servants and other persons about that inn had any serious weight been attached to this offer of palmer it would have excited attention and would have been given in evidence before the coroner on the other hand it is to the last degree improbable that a medical man knowing that he had given a large dose of strychnine with the violent properties of which he was well acquainted should have supposed that by the accidental spilling of a jar the liver spleen and some of the tissues remaining behind he could possibly escape detection i will next call your attention to the evidence of charles newton who swore that he saw palmer at mr salt's surgery at nine o'clock on monday night when he gave him three grains of strychnine in a piece of paper he did not bring this to the knowledge of the crown until the night before this trial commenced he was examined before the coroner but although then called to corroborate the statement of roberts as to the presence of palmer at hawkins's shop where he was said to have purchased strychnine he then said nothing about the purchase on the monday night a man who so conducts himself who when first sworn omits a considerable portion of what he tells three weeks afterwards and again comes forward at the last moment and tells more than enough in his opinion to drive home the guilt of the person who is accused that man is not to be believed upon his oath there are other circumstances which render newton's statement in the highest degree improbable that palmer should once in a way purchase strychnine in rugeley is not to be wondered at it is sold to kill vermin to kill dogs and whatever the evidence as to the galloping of the mares and the dropping their foals it shows that palmer had occasion for it and for other purposes but that having bought enough for all ordinary purposes he should go and buy more the next day and should purchase it at the shop of a tradesman with whom he had dealt for two years is in the highest degree incredible nobody would believe it nobody can or ought to believe it but observe this also palmer had been in london on the monday and in london there is no difficulty in procuring strychnine it is sold to any one who by writing down the technical description of what he wants shows that he has had a medical education why did he not get it in london and if he could not get it in london why did he not get it at stafford or at any of the other places to which he had been if he had bought it for this guilty purpose would he not as a wary man have taken care that when his house was searched there should be found in it the paper containing the exact quantity of strychnine which he had purchased what could have been easier to do than that newton's story therefore cannot be believed but in addition i will show that palmer who is stated by herring to have been in london at a quarter past three o'clock could not have been in rugeley at the time at which newton says he was at mr salt's palmer attended the post-mortem examination and is it credible that he a skilful medical man who studied in a london hospital and made a note upon one of his books to the effect of strychnine would ask that stupid sort of fellow newton anything about its action upon a dog and would when the answer was given snap his fingers and say 
"'It is all right, then. It cannot be found.' "'No one will believe it for a moment.' The animus of Newton is shown by his admitting the word poor and representing Palmer as having said, You will find this fellow suffering from a disease of the throat. He has had syphilis. And then, when cross-examined upon the subject by my learned friend Mr. Grove, replying, I don't know whether he said poor or rich, as if that had anything to do with the question. I will now take you back to what occurred at Shrewsbury. The case for the Crown is that, as early as Wednesday, the 14th November, the scheme of poisoning Cook begun to be executed at Shrewsbury. It is suggested that Cook was dosed with something that was put into his brandy and water. You will remember that I read to you a letter from Cook to Fisher, dated the 16th of November, to which there is this postscript. Quote, I am better. End quote that must have referred to his illness at shrewsbury it is the postscript to a letter in which he speaks of the object he has in view which is of great importance to himself and palmer is his writing in that tone consistent with his having a belief that palmer had drugged him with poison for the purpose of destroying his life at shrewsbury what did palmer say about it Quote, cook says i have put something in his glass I don't play such tricks. End quote. He treated it as though it had never been understood to be more than the expression of a man who, if not actually drunk, was very nearly so. Palmer did not arrive at the Raven until after the dinner hour. We have no evidence how Cook fared there, but we shall be able to prove that he went from there to the Unicorn, where he arrived pretty flush and where he sat drinking brandy and water with saunders the trainer and a lady seven or eight glasses of brandy and water did this good young man drink and the result was that his unfortunate syphilitic throat was in a very dreadful state if not of actual laceration at least of soreness and irritation the learned sergeant here read to the jury a long extract from an article which had appeared in some newspaper which he did not mention, in which the occurrences at Shrewsbury were described in a style which seemed intended to be humorous, and in which Cook's sickness was attributed to his having taken too much brandy upon champagne, in order to restore his British solidity. The learned sergeant said that this entirely concurred with his own view of the case. He then continued cook's own conduct afterwards proved that his illness was owing to his having drunk too much he got up in the morning breakfasted with palmer was good friends with him and went with him to rugeley they received pratt's letter of the thirteenth in consequence of which palmer wrote to pratt to say that some one would call upon him and pay him two hundred pounds and cook wrote to fisher and asked him to call on pratt and pay this money does that look as though he thought there had been an attempt to poison him mrs brooks who gave her evidence in a most creditable manner proved that there was much sickness among the strangers who were at shrewsbury and the rest of her evidence did not tell much against palmer who might after cook's complaint very naturally have been looking at the tumbler to see if anything had been put into it cook got worse and at last had the good sense to put his money into fisher's hands and go to bed 
he was still very sick and a doctor was sent for who recommended an emetic cook made himself sick by drinking warm water and putting the handle of a toothbrush down his throat he took a pill and a black draught went to sleep and next morning was quite well this is really too ludicrous to receive a moment's consideration a person named myatt was in the room at the raven all the evening he has been put into the box but i shall call him and you will hear his account palmer and cook having got back to rugeley the history of the slow poisoning continues they were there together and probably talked on the way of their difficulties and the mode of getting out of them and of the small way that the winnings at shrewsbury would go to effect that object both seeing ruin staring them in the face unless the prince of wales insurance office could be made to pay the money which was due and they could meanwhile remain free from all suspicion of insolvency or any sort of misconduct when they got to rugeley they provided for the temporary difficulty by sending two hundred pounds to pratt they were then evidently on friendly terms cook's winnings being at palmer's service and probably both effecting their objects because as it would appear from what palmer said cook had some interest in the bills which were outstanding probably his name might not be upon them but as they were engaged in these racing transactions were joint owners of one horse and had the same trainer they were very probably equally interested in these bills were in fact what i remember to have once heard a nobleman well known upon the turf call confederates the frequency of palmer's visits to cook during the illness of the latter at rugeley affords no ground of suspicion against the prisoner on the contrary it tells in his favour cook had no friend in the town but palmer with whom he may almost be said to have been on a visit for though he did not sleep in palmer's house palmer was in continual attendance on him and owing to the close proximity of his own residence was enabled to bring him many little delicacies not easily obtainable at an inn had he neglected the sick man and only visited him occasionally the inference of the crown would probably have been that he was a black-hearted scoundrel who only looked in now and then to give him his poison but as he was zealously and laboriously attentive to him the conclusion is that he must have murdered him it is said that palmer was guilty of a falsehood in representing cook as suffering from diarrhoea and that is to put a very violent and a very uncharitable construction on his words for you remember that bamford swore to cook having told him that his bowels had been affected once or twice that his bowels had been affected twice or three times on sundays but leaving these minor points i come to one which in this case of circumstantial evidence is of the very last importance and should be deemed decisive of the prisoner's innocence the supposition of the crown is that palmer intended to dose cook with antimony to keep his stomach in continual irritation by vomiting in order that he might the more surely dispatch him with strychnine and that during sunday the day on which he insisted on his taking the broth cook was under the influence of this insidious treatment now supposing this to be true and assuming it to be the fact that palmer was indeed bent upon destroying cook by this singular process is it not manifest that there is one man who of all the men in the world would have been the very last 
whom he would have selected to be a witness of his proceedings that man is a surgeon in the prime of life a man intimately acquainted with cook and very much attached to him mr jones of lutterworth yet this is the very man to whom when he is about to set out for london palmer writes a letter informing him that cook is ill and urging him to come over and see him without delay i entreat of you to appreciate the full importance of that fact the more you think of it the more profound will become your conviction that it affords evidence irrefragable of palmer's innocence the imputation is that palmer meant to kill cook to possess himself of his winnings who was with cook when the race was won who was by his side on the shrewsbury racecourse for the three minutes that he was speechless who saw him take out his pocket-book and count up his winnings who but jones jones was his bosom friend his companion his confidant and who knew to the last farthing the amount of his gains jones was of all men living the most likely to be the recipient of cook's confidence and the man who was bound by every consideration of honour friendship and affection to protect him to vindicate his cause and to avenge his death yet this was the man for whom palmer sent that he might converse with cook receive his confidences minister to him in his illness and even sleep in the same room with him how if palmer is the murderer they represent him are you to account for his summoning jones to the bedside of the sick man if cook really suspected which we are assured he did that palmer was poisoning him jones was the man to whom he would most willingly have unbosomed himself and in whose faithful ear he would have eagerly disburdened the perilous stuff that weighed upon his own brain palmer and jones were both medical men and it is not improbable that in the course of his studies the latter may have noted in his class-book the very passages respecting the operation of strychnine which also attracted the attention of the former is it conceivable that if palmer meant to slay cook with poison in the dead of the night he would have previously ensured the presence in his victim's bedroom of a medical witness who would know from the symptoms that the man was not dying a natural death he brings a medical man into the room and makes him lie within a few inches of the sick man's bed that he may hear his terrific shrieks and witness those agonizing convulsions which indicate the fatal potency of poison can you believe it he might have dispatched him by means that would have defied detection for cook was taking morphia medicinally and a grain or two more would have silently thrown him into an eternal sleep but instead of doing so he sends to lutterworth for jones you have been told that this was done to recover appearances done to cover appearances no 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 you cannot believe it it is not in human nature it cannot be true you cannot find him guilty you dare not find him guilty on the suspicion of its truth the country will not stand by you if you believe it to be true you will be impeached before the world if you say that it is true i believe in my conscience that it is false and that consistently with the rules that govern human nature it cannot possibly be true sensation and murmurs of applause 
with respect to the interviews and dialogues that took place between the prisoner and mr stevens i contend that so far from telling against the former they are in his favour there is nothing but the evidence of a kind and considerate nature in the fact of his having ordered a shell and a strong oak coffin for the deceased nor is it possible to torture into a presumption of guilt the few words of irritation that may have fallen from the prisoner in the course of a conversation in which mr stevens treated him with scorn not to say insolence with respect to the betting-book many persons had access to cook's room servants both men and women undertakers men and barbers and though i do not venture to mark out any particular person for suspicion any one of them may have purloined the book and been afraid to return it it is not fair in a case of this momentous importance to affix the opprobrium on a man who is not proved to have ever had it in his hand the crown had no doubt originally intended to rely upon the prisoner's medical books as affording damning proof of his guilt but i will refer to those volumes for evidences that will speak eloquently in his favour in youth and early manhood there was no such protection for a man as the society of an innocent and virtuous woman to whom he is sincerely attached if you find a young man devoted to such a woman loving her dearly and marrying her for the love he bears her you may depend upon it that he is a man of a humane and gentle nature little prone to deeds of violence to such a woman was palmer attached in his youth and i will bring you proof positive to show that the volumes cited against him were the books he used when a student and that the manuscript passages are in the handwriting of his wife his was a marriage of the heart he loved that young and virtuous woman with a pure and generous affection he loved her as he now loves her first-born who awaits with trembling anxiety the verdict that will restore him to the arms of his father or drive that father to an ignominious death upon the scaffold the prisoner here covered his face with his hands and shed tears here in this book i have conclusive evidence of the kind of man that palmer was seven years ago i find in its pages the copy of a letter addressed by him while still a student to the woman whom he afterwards made his wife it is as follows quote, my dearest annie i snatch a moment from my studies to write to your dear dear little self i need scarcely say that the principal inducement i have to work is the desire of getting my studies finished so as to be able to press your dear little form in my arms with best best love believe me dearest annie your own william End quote. now this is not the sort of letter that is generally read in courts of justice it was no part of my instructions to read that letter but the book was put in to prove that this man is a wicked heartless savage desperado and i will show what he was seven years ago that he was a man who loved a young woman for her own sake loved her with a pure and virtuous affection such an affection as would in almost all natures be a certain antidote against guilt such is the man whom it has been my duty to defend upon this occasion and upon the evidence that is before you i cannot believe him to be guilty 
don't suppose gentlemen that he is unsupported in this dreadful trial by his family and his friends an aged mother who may have disapproved of some part of his conduct awaits with trembling anxiety your verdict a dear sister can scarcely support herself under the suspense which now presses upon her a brave and gallant brother stands by to defend him and spares neither time nor trouble to save him from an awful doom i call upon you gentlemen to raise your minds to a capacity to estimate the high duty which you have to perform you have to stem the torrent of prejudice you have to vindicate the honour and character of your country you have with firmness and courage to do your duty and to find a verdict for the crown if you believe that guilt is proved but if you have a doubt on that point depend upon it that the time will come when the innocence of that man will be made apparent and then you will deeply regret any want of due and calm consideration of the case which it has been my duty to lay before you the speech of the learned sergeant occupied exactly eight hours in its delivery there were some slight indications of an attempt to applaud at its conclusion but they were instantly repressed the court then adjourned till ten o'clock next morning End of section 15